Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Barry Averich is a prolific documentary filmmaker. Three years ago, he produced Blurred Lines about the contemporary art market. Now he has returned to the subject matter with Made You Look, an exploration of the Nodler forgery scandal that ensnared some of the most sophisticated people in the art world, particularly Sotheby's former chairman, Domenico de Soleil, and Nodler's Anne Friedman, as well as the prominent Hammer family. Barry Averich, I watched your new documentary, Made You Look, and I uh, was very impressed by it. I actually sat through some of the trial and know the case very well. And I was, you know, most documentaries get some piece or make decisions for narrative purposes and all, all, but I couldn't see anything in your um, film that uh, left anything out. And so I wanted to ask first, you know, what drew you to this story beyond the normal rich people getting duped uh, part of it? And then we can talk some of the particulars of people's motivations and characters. Well, I mean, you use the word character, and this story had every element and every character of a Hollywood blockbuster, and I loved it. Everybody was, you know, from the shadowy you know, uh, people from Spain and Mexico to these eccentric collectors uh, and, and of course, the entire art world. So I was drawn to it immediately. I had made a documentary in 2017 called Blurred Lines for Netflix, and that was a real sort of 101 on how the art world worked. It was an introduction really for me because I saw lots of my friends spending vast amounts of money on art. I was going to shows and in New York and I'd been to Basel and I, and I, I was just uh, completely mystified. I, I, I would walk in around the booths in Basel and Switzerland and, and uh, galleries wouldn't even talk to me. Uh, and, and I couldn't even get the price of things. And I figured, what the hell world am I living in? So I'd made that film and, and I thought to myself, that's enough. I don't think I really want to go back into this art world again. And then a collector, uh, brought this story up and I really said no a couple of times. And, and then I got on a long flight to Dubai, oddly enough, uh, and was going to look at, uh, uh, the, uh, is it the Guggenheim? I, the, 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 the incredible museum that Jean Nouvel designed over in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and, and so I brought everything on the Nodler I can find 500 pages. And by the time I landed, I was hooked, but I did know, uh, that, the only way that this film could really work is to get the characters on camera. And, and as a documentary filmmaker, you, you never want to fall into the usual critical trap of a lot of talking heads. Barry's films have a lot of talking heads, but these talking heads are so good that, you know, I felt that if I can get them to talk and really construct what went on, then, then I have a film. Well, I was impressed that you really were incredibly fair, right? Uh, uh, you had Anne Friedman making her case. She's really the backbone of this. I'm I'm not sure you would have had quite the documentary without her as the centerpiece, uh, whether she's defending herself or, or or whatever else. But you you presented her points, and then you presented counterpoints uh, to it throughout the story. 
and and to me that you know I think one of the um, uh, interlocutors even says uh, they were doing some jury uh, uh, panel uh, 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 you know, yeah, consulting on it and the jurists were all going oh you know you hear one side and you think you agree with it and you hear the other and that made them think they had a shot at, uh, at this and that's sort of part of what makes the documentary so, so good but I wanted to ask about getting Ann Friedman to cooperate. Was, yeah. was that her? Was she eager? I mean, what are her motivations in doing that? She, you know, she was not eager at all. Uh, it took some convincing. Uh, I flew to New York. I'm based in Toronto. I flew to New York uh, and spent hours and hours um, trying to convince her. I had seen another documentary on the same topic uh, that was fairly uh, archival driven and, and, you know, the lawyers and the journalists, and they're important. Uh, but I knew I needed central characters to make it work. You're right. She was the backbone. What I said to Anne, quite honestly, was, pardon the pun, I'm going to give you the canvas of a feature-length film to tell your story. I, I cannot uh, uh, guarantee that this is your vindication. I cannot guarantee that people won't have their own view. But in a in a filmography of nearly 50 documentaries, I'm balanced. You know, I will let the audience decide. There'll be people in the film you will not like. There'll be people in the film that are supportive. And to be honest with you, after every um, time and every shoot that we did, and I, and I filmed nearly 25 hours with her and spent another 100 interviewing her, you know, you, you do tend to vacillate from going, God, you know, for 10 years, I mean, an ocean of red flags, but it was over a 10-year period. So you leave a shoot, my own crew going, you know, should have known, did know, uh, got conned. You know, you, you go back and forth in this story, which which I think is, you know, uh, I think part of the entertainment value as well. But it did, it did take an enormous amount of convincing. Do I think that Anne will uh, like the film? No, Anne is an academic. Uh, it is um, death by paper cuts and that anything she reads and sees, she hates the trailer for the film. Uh, she saw that because that's public. The film hasn't been released in the US yet. She hasn't seen it uh, on that end of it. So, you know, uh, but that's not my motivation is to, you know, to, to either vindicate Anne or to uh, give her her day. Uh, well, it is to give her another day in court to let her tell her side of the story. Same thing with Domenico de Sole uh, and others who felt that television shows like American Greed and 60 Minutes were choppy and they, they used pieces and they really didn't, you know, they manipulated them. And, and I basically said the same thing to everybody. I, I'm going to sit down with you. I'm an interviewer. I've done this forever. I'm going to give you hours to talk. I can't use it all, but I promise you your perspective will be in the film. So Anne ultimately trusted me uh, and and. You know, and I think it was the fairest shake she was going to ever get. Uh, no, I totally agree. I know the story very well. I sat through. I watched the uh, the the trial. I watched people's emotions and some of the the joking and the uh, the the going white as a ghost uh, at at various times. And and I thought uh, it was very fair, very useful. You had the woman who's written the books about confidence games. Was she? 
particularly knowledgeable about this case or was she just presented with the case and asked to give an opinion? No, she wrote a book uh, um, called The Confidence Game and she writes an entire chapter and does a, a, a psychoanalytical profile of Anne Friedman. Uh, and so I was very interested in providing the audience with a, an insight to her brain, to Anne Friedman's brain. And I, I knew that it's risky. There'll be some people who watch this film and say, that's flaky, or how could she know what Anne was speaking or thinking? How could she defend her? But uh, I felt that her perspective was very interesting to me. Well, I want to go a little further then, because I thought that was terribly interesting. And there was a throwaway line that suggested there was a lot more. And obviously, it's in the chapter in, in that book, or maybe from the conversations. But she talks about Glafira Rosales showed up at a time when Anne Friedman was particularly vulnerable, that the, this work came along and, and, and made Anne Friedman a player. And I wasn't sure whether that's the what Kornikov was re, uh, referring to, to, or whether there was something uh, else that that she knows about uh, uh, Friedman's, you know, motivation, uh, temperament, so on. I, I think it's a little of both. I think that the gallery, uh, and you know, and, and I'm not professing to be uh, a student of of the art world, but it doesn't take a lot to see that the Gagosians and uh, the White Cubes and the Hauser and Wirths were becoming, you know, more of the, the, uh, the de rigueur galleries and, and, and were representing, uh, uh, you know, the, the hot artists of the time. And Nodler uh, was missing that, that movement. There's no question of being the, the headline gallery. It was almost like, for giving a retail analogy, there are those that were going uh, to... Uh, 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 Saks versus Barney's. Barney's was always just a little cooler of a store, and you can get some designers that were a little hipper. And and there's no question, Nodler was missing that wave. And so, you know, if you're Ann Friedman and you've been an art star for so long, then you know, if you're not able to attract those rock star artists that Gagosian and others have, uh, Kordansky, you know, then then you're you're you know you're starting to slip. So she is vulnerable, and and we know later on through you know, the financial forensics of, of the Nodler Gallery, that she's vulnerable because she's going to be getting pressure from Michael Hammer. Uh, Anne herself told me that, you know, and she said this from the day she started, the business in the building was for sale. That, you know, my, if they weren't going to be turning out tons of cash and profit, that Michael Hammer wasn't going to hang on to this. And we know the building was worth a fortune. We know what they got for that for that building. I walk past it all the time and amazed that I think it's Leon Black that, now is renovating into a home for the last decade or something on that end of it. So it was a vulnerable time for Anne. You know, did that motivate her to become a criminal? No. Did that motivate her to take risks uh, in, in believing the art was real? Maybe, maybe to a certain extent. You know, I'm not in her brain. Uh, but, you know, as the psychologist Kornikova says, you know, there was no turning back once you're both feet in. Well, she does use the term cognitive dissonance, and there does seem to be a a massive level of investment on Friedman's part that even now doesn't allow her to fully admit. I mean, I, I again, just based on the the documentary, there's a a sort of stunning moment when 
the trial comes to the point where um, Michael Hammer is supposed to testify, and uh, an hour before he goes on the stand, they, they settle, and you present in a different order than I'm going to present it now, but you present her attorney saying, well, the Desolets had a number in mind, and we met that n number that they thought was fair, and so we uh, settled. And and just before that, you have Ann Friedman saying, uh, in in sort of outrage that she she was denied her day in court and her chance to testify, and they must have been afraid. And you and and again, you looked at that and you thought, these your own lawyer is saying the opposite. These can't be right. You clearly can't admit something to yourself in this. Well, her own lawyer, Luke Nikas, you know, admitted, and he says this on camera. It could have gone either way. He believed that. Uh, certainly the Desolets believed they would have prevailed in court. Uh, Anne truly believed that she would have won, uh, that she believes that they were afraid, and she says it in the film, of, of her testifying on that end of it. I'm not a lawyer on that end of it. I think given the fact that, you know, use your word, stunning, there was this almost this stunning betrayal that happened where the art experts, uh, paid art experts, uh, were, you know, had all, you know, whether we want to get into the semantics of written approvals or not, they saw the art, uh, and, and many had said to her, whether it was in writing or not, that, that it looked real, it was beautiful, they believed it, and they all turned their back on her. So I think in that particular time of the, of the case, then you go, I better settle here. But there, but Anne, Anne is, Anne's a salesperson, and I don't mean that in a negative way. She would have got up on that panel on that, sorry, on the stand, and she would have testified. That, that's exactly what I mean by the cognitive dissonance. That, and like a good salesperson, you convince yourself of this th thing that you're selling. There's this moment in the film, and I and I was and I, I go back to it all the time when we were shooting, where we 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 lead Anne in the interview to the point, to the day, to the moment where Glafir Rosales confesses. There's no more cognitive dissonance anymore. It's over. This is it. And, you know, and, and I let the camera linger on Anne because you, you, you can't convince anybody. This is it. This woman has confessed the crime. It's it on that end of it. And it's all over. So, and yes, Anne wanted to believe it was real up until that moment. She wanted the discovery. Well, but she also takes great uh, offense that Jack Flam didn't somehow do more. You know, he went to the FBI, which was a betrayal, but he also confronted me in public about this, which was a betrayal. He should have called me up. She's now blaming him for not pulling her aside and as gently as possible convincing her that it, what she was doing was wrong and that she should have addressed it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's his fault that she was uh, maintaining this fraud. Well, exactly. I mean, none of us were in the room, but, you know, to Jack's, and Anne would hate this, but to Jack's defense, if the mother wells that were real, it was good for everyone. So, I mean, you know, I, I think Jack got, and I've had lots of conversations with him, Jack got very frustrated with the fact that Anne was not willing to even look at the potential that the work was fake. Even when the reports came back from the, you know, the the forensics people, she debated all of it. And to her defense on this side of it, mistakes are made. There's no question. You know, you know, you, I, I've studied uh, forgeries now forever. I mean, I, I'm already thinking about another film. I can't believe it. But uh, it, it's uh, it, it's it's amazing on how much work we know 
that's out there in private collections and public collections that that are questionable. But you know, who wants to look at it? One of the most interesting things about this whole case, one of the major things that that brought this into such public attention was the Lagrange lawsuit. Normally, when someone discovers that they've bought something that's fake, they either try and put it away or resell it quietly to someone if they're less ethical than they should be, or, you know, they just want to make it go away. No one wants to be, or you just leave it on your wall and just hope that it never comes up again. What was interesting was that LaGrange was going through this divorce and that prompted him to sort of pursue this with them rather vocally and publicly. There's a certain element where he he must have felt he couldn't uh, suffer any further the embarrassment of uh, having bought a forgery. And that's seem to push these cascade of events forward that created this conflict between Friedman and the Hammers, you know, internally about who is responsible and who is at fault. Well, you're right. And I and I think, you know, there is that moment in the film where she says, I'll find another buyer, which, you know, she tempers by saying, let me find another solution or whatnot. And, the, and a similar thing happens at the beginning of this fraudulent period with, with the, Jack, the Jack Levy Pollock where, you know, it's it's uh, uh, a report comes back that says it's a fake. She does not believe it. She has seen mistakes. This is Anne Friedman. And she puts the painting back up for sale uh, for a lot more money and defends it by saying that the value of Pollock's had gone up. So I'm going to ask for more money. I believe it's real. She believed that the, the LaGrange uh, piece was, uh, was real, too, uh, and believed all of it was real until the confession. Yeah, until she couldn't believe any longer. Well, exactly. This is one of those things uh, that people pounce on with the uh, art market, I I think, because it makes them feel better about it, that very smart people, very wealthy people believe what they want to believe. I mean, let's be clear. A lot of the people who bought these works bought them because they they wanted a Rothko, a Pollock, a thing that you couldn't necessarily get. And so they're willing to overlook the holes in the provenance, the, the odd stories. Her stories weren't terrible. Asario did live out in East Hampton and have these uh, connections. And David Herbert, I mean, they, they were very, I mean, in spending time with Carlos Bergantinos, as I did in Spain, I went to him. Uh, Glafira would not be, her lawyers wouldn't let her go anywhere near this because I imagine she still has some restitution and some issues to deal with and who knows what else on that end of it. But, you know, for, for Carlos it is not a sophisticated man. But he's but it was smart enough to help Glafira connect the dots and drop the right names along the way to create this plausible interest in this film. And, you know, I to, to quote uh, and, and, you know, I'll get slammed for this. But to quote Sarah Thornton, art consultants have been teaching their clients to buy art with their ears and not their eyes. And so this is the right investment. That you can flip this. This will have an appreciating value. If you buy this piece, you can now walk into that uh, gallery and they'll show you work before anybody else. So it becomes status and power at the end of it. But, you know, ask these collectors, do they truly love the painting that they bought? Oh, yeah. But, you know, who, who truly knows? I mean, it, it's such a game. Normally, we see with forgers is they are talented but failed artists who part of the motivation is just showing their talent in a sort of perverse way. And then there's this Chinese tradition of 
you know, Stop. remaking other people's work. That's less interesting to me. I think what's what's sort of more is the internal conflicts between a lot of these people. You know, Bergantino's uh, kind of abandons Glafira Rosales. She suffers the consequences and he, you know, is, I mean, it's not like he hasn't suffered consequences, but he's free and uh, in Spain and is not uh, forced to restitute uh, uh, money. And they have a child together, which is even sort of more extra extraordinary with all, all of that. The De Desolés, I can't quite tell whether they've gotten what they wanted out of this or they're frustrated by it. I mean, they, they too don't really come off as, you know, great characters in, in this. They obviously have, you know, uh, you have sympathy uh, uh, for them, but there's something oddly, I don't want to say vindictive because they were trying to get some level of justice, but there's, there was some element in their, in their retelling where there's a, they're, they're, they're uh, enjoying uh, uh, it. Well, I think that's what makes uh, uh, Domenico and Eleanor de Sole wonderful characters. I mean, what is their motivation here? D Domenico is uh, an, an uberly successful businessman who's created the Tom Ford Empire, you know, ran Sotheby's, uh, and he is about the art of the deal, uh, ruthless in a, in a non, not in a negative way, in the way I describe him. He's a tough businessman, and he got. Uh, uh, swindled, and he was not going to let it go. Uh, yes, he had ultimately settled, but uh, he I, he was mystified with the fact that so many others weren't suing. No, a lot of wealthy people just didn't want the headline. There's a lot of Rosales fakes that are on the walls, and that people don't even want to look, uh, or they don't want to even bother, you know, having themselves exposed and embarrassed. Uh, Domenico and Eleanor were were so they were angry and and legitimately so but they were going to you know take this to the next step they were so offended that the their their the offers were you know beyond what they wanted and and or below what they wanted and the fact that nobody was really taking any ownership and i think frustrated with that nobody was really getting back to them you know he talks about in the point in the film where he realizes he's got a fake and he starts pursuing both Michael Hammer, the Nodler Gallery, and Anne Friedman, and nobody's returning his calls. So, you know what? He, he's a theatrical man. They, you know, off they went uh, to court. Uh, do I think they got what they wanted? Uh, I never found out what the settlement was, keeping in mind that they sued. You know, he paid 8.3, I think, for the for the piece, for the Rothko, and they, they sued for 20-plus for damages and whatever. Uh, I don't ultimately know what they settled for uh, on that end of it, uh, but, you know, they seem happy that they got their day in court and got something back. Well, I think you put your finger on the thing that I is, to me, the lasting unresolved issue uh, in all of this. And and the other reason this this sort of became so public, and that's the divergent interests between Friedman and Hammer, right? Normally, you yes. know, the, uh, and, and one of the elements that, that uh, we're, we're kind of missing here is that Anne Friedman um, uh, would seem to have deep enough pockets to 
take responsibility financially for settling so, so, some of this. And so there seems to have been a standoff between Hammer and Friedman about basically who was going to pay. And because they couldn't come to any sort of either didn't try to or a, a, a way of sort of resolving this quietly, it turns into a, 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 an even bigger trial and all. And 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 that's sort of part of the the timing of the settlement is also interesting to 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 me. She may have felt that she had a devastating uh, case to make on the stand, but I remember it. Maybe I'm wrong in remembering it. That most people felt by the time we got to their testimony that things were not going their their way, and the potential liabilities of testifying for both of them were going to be, you know, uh, quite large. Well, yeah, I think, you know, the optics, uh, and I'm not a, 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 you know, legal analyst, but the optics, even from a layman's perspective, were not good. You know, the, the again, the, the, the art experts had, had uh, betrayed them and, turn, and changed their opinions, and, and uh, we found out that Michael Hammer uh, was, you know, again, to quote them, was using the, the gallery as, you know, for uh, the purposes of uh, making large purchases and his lifestyle and whatnot, and, and so it didn't look great. I'll say, I'll say two things on that. That, that is a, uh, important to note that uh, Michael Hammer, aside from financial ramifications, gets off, in fact, I think the easiest here in that when you talk about a lot of guilt to go around in this story, he completely knew this was a gallery that was not uh, in great financial shape. Suddenly for over a decade, millions of dollars, $60 million is pouring in and life is good. Uh, and to believe that, you know, he's not questioning, he just rolls with it and, and ultimately uh, ends up, you know, being implicated here, but, but really walks away. Okay, you know, if, if you read the headlines, it's really, you know, Ann Friedman, Ann Friedman, Ann Friedman on that end of it. But where's Michael Hammer? And again, not being a lawyer, I, I you know, I find it interesting that I don't know why, why Ann wasn't able to separate herself from those civil lawsuits uh, given the fact that she was terminated by the gallery, whether she left on her own or wh whatever it was, she was gone. Why is she even implicated as an employee? Why is it, I don't know on that end of it. Uh, and maybe that was the legal recommendation. Uh, yeah, it, it also amazes me, and I'm sure you'll cut this out, but you know, I will, I will read re uh, you know, a review for this film that will say, uh, does this film tell us that something we didn't know I didn't make I didn't make this film going back to your first question. What attracted me to the film? I wasn't making this film for the art community. I made I was making this film for anybody that wants to understand how the art world works and the human nature involved in buying art. So you know I I, I always find it amazing. Did we learn anything new? I don't know. You know it it it's you know they lay these pieces out. Well, of course you're laying out an entire story. Everybody's looking for that Michael Jackson moment where somebody walks in and and says. Oh, Oh my God, he did this or that. This, this is a thriller, and and the characters are light up. And I and again, I make films to be for the entertainment value. And God, there's a lot of it here. Look, I got no problem with with people love to call rich people stupid, and I've got no evidence that they're any smarter than any anyone else. They just have more more money, and that's that's fine uh, too. But I think beyond the vanity part of it, there there is just an interesting story about 
how people get themselves into these situations. And it's because of the desire. She desired to be a prominent uh, dealer and either just could not accept the, you know, the warning flags or, or she was, you know, willing to go over that. And the buyers wanted these objects. And what's more interesting are the people who like Levy, who are like, look, <laughs> I want to buy this, but I'm going to make sure. And, and even the DSLAs try to put in a warranty uh, of authenticity into to the work uh, as well. So it and, and to their defense, I mean, yes, the, you know, you're right. The, the Anne Friedman who wanted to be uh, more respected than she was and have this great discovery to the to the buyers who wanted to have that Rothkor Pollock on their wall at any cost. Uh, you know, again, if you're buying something from the Nodler Gallery, it didn't make it in the film, but everybody said, and this came out of the court case too, that if you were walking into Nodler, it was the equivalent of walking into Tiffany's. You're buying a diamond for your partner. You're not asking for the certificate from the mine in, in Rwanda or South Africa where the diamond came from. You trusted them. And then you add a piece of paper that says these 12 experts looked at it and said it was good. So you go, okay. And And the other thing is, you know, which nobody wants to hear is that, you know, they were, the collectors were getting some good deals, right? Yeah. And that's, and I guess that's the sort of the point here is it, it for the art world, this is a good reminder. Uh, it, it should probably be, you should put the hour and a half in viewing it anytime you buy something for more than, you know, X amount of dollars. Just like, did you check these things to, you know, don't forget about, about all of that. I mean, it does happen. I mean, even as a collector, I'm not a collector by in, in that world at all, but I am called by dealers occasionally that say somebody's got to unload a piece. A family's got to do this. They inherit it. They got, they want the cash. It does happen. And versus going through Sotheby's or Christie's where we know there's 14 layers of fees and you're lucky to get a tuna sandwich at the end of it after you've sold your piece. So it does happen. Uh, but these were some, you know, some very good prices. Yes, and 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 good stories. I mean, again, some of it is the uh, the very weakness of these is it, it may have in part been their appeal as well. You know, the the Mexican uh, uh, painter and his son and all. It just it, you know, it, it, uh, part of all of this is getting a good story with the work that you're 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 buying. Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I loved. You know, the DeSoles, we shot them in Hilton Head. And I, 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 you know, for people that eventually see the film and, you know, behind them is a Rothko. I mean, you know, they've got an impressive art collection and it becomes for a lot of people trophy hunting to walk through one's house and say, I've got a, a Kelly, I've got a Pollock, I've got a de Kooning. I mean, it's, that's, it's another world. It's not a world I live in, but it's a fantastic glimpse into that world. Uh, I it definitely is, and that is a great place to to stop. Uh, Barry, I, I can't thank you enough for spending the time with me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 